Hello and welcome to Sync Music Matters, a podcast that explores the beautiful relationship between music and the moving image. My name's Jim Hostrip and I'm your host on this journey, as each week I chew the fat with industry professionals who, on a daily basis, work with music for visuals. Now you might immediately assume that I'm talking about composers, but I'm also talking about editors, music supervisors, directors and anyone else who's involved with the synchronous process of pairing audio and visuals. In this week's episode, I'm talking to RTS award-winning editor, Mike Holliday. So, what can we expect from today's chit-chat? Well, Mike is a very funny guy, as you might expect from someone who um, cuts comedy. So, uh, we have a good old laugh. Um, I think something that I found very interesting from this conversation were the parallels between composing and editing. Obviously, we're both working with visuals and telling a story, but rhythm is a key part of that, um, as is bearing in mind the whole time that we are in service of, you know, this production as a a whole. Um, So there's some very interesting parallels. I think that probably extends to a lot of creative disciplines, um, but certainly it's very obvious here between composing and editing. Um, I've long thought that editors are very much the gatekeepers of music in in many respects, depending on the programmes, obviously. Um, But they are on the front line making decisions about what music gets used. Um, They're auditioning a lot of music and making sort of creative decisions or certainly creating shortlists. Um, So understanding how they go about that, certainly for me as a composer or anyone who has music that they want to get synced on TV and film is is very interesting. So there's some invaluable thoughts on there on how Mike works with with music. Um, We go under the skin of a couple of his projects, including including uh, the BBC comedy series Ghosts um, and sort of also look at how he used music in that um, as well as Code 404, which is a series he's currently working on or has worked on for Sky. Mike also waxes lyrical about a composer he's worked with recently called Lucretia Dalt, who I'd never actually heard of. She's a sort of artist and composer, um, but her music is very interesting and definitely worth uh, worth checking out. Um, Mike also kind of reveals the music that sort of helped shape him over the years um, and talks about the Red Hot Chili Peppers album Blood Sugar Sex Magic as well as Rage Against the Machine, both of which are very firm favourites with me. Um, But then he also talks about Jamiroquai and Stevie Wonder and how they've kind of sort of shaped his musical landscape. Um, We also briefly touch on like the forgotten 80s classic The Man With Two Brains, which until this episode was a film that I had firmly forgotten about. Um, And we also talk about the Chuckle Brothers, which was, if you are not familiar with the uh, Rotherham-born comedy duo of the Chuckle Brothers, then they are definitely worth checking out. Um, so without further ado, let's dive in. As ever, all the music that we talk about in the show is listed in the show notes on your p- preferred podcast platform, um, or you can head over to larpmusic.com and press podcast in the top right corner and that will take you to the digital abode of sync music matters um, if you would like to get in touch with me for any reason then you can do a podcast at larpmusic.com um, i would suggest doing it via social media but the chances are that if you do your message will go unread for anywhere between eight to twelve months um, sorry i'm not very active and if you are a regular listener to the show and you enjoy it, I would be hugely grateful if you could give it a review on Apple Podcasts. That just tells Apple that the podcast is worth listening to and hopefully it gets shared with as many people as possible. Anyway, let's talk to Mike. Mike Holiday specialises in comedy and won the RTS Entertainment and Comedy Award for Best Editing for the long-running series Horrible Histories, for which he was also awarded a BAFTA. He has also worked on BAFTA-nominated series Ghosts for the BBC, The Baby for HBO, Code 404 for Sky, and Two Weeks to Live, starring Maisie Williams. 
He's also done a plethora of other shows, including Dead Pixels, Man Down, Yonderland, Drifters, and The Reluctant Landlord. Mike Holiday, thanks for joining me. Hello, you all right? <laughs> I'm good, how are you? All right, I'll just clarify, I was given one of the production BAFTAs for Horrible Histories because there is no editing award for children's television. But, oh. And they'd won so many, they started giving them out to the long-serving <laughs> crew members. So it was Series 4 and they'd won it three years in a row and they sort of, they took pity on me because I didn't get the RTS craft nomination that year. Okay. And they went, so they well, gave if we BAFTA. win the BAFTA, you can have one. They didn't think they were going to win, I don't think. <laughs> and then we won, <laughs> no. I, was like, I was like, thank you very much. Nice. <laughs> so I do have a BAFTA. It's for the whole production team. Just to but be clear. It's, it is specifically on your mantelpiece. It's on so. my shelf, so yeah, yeah. Nice. I've forgotten all about every all the other hundreds of people that contributed over the years to that show. It's all mine. Yeah. <laughs> and you were on it for five years, were you? Five, the first five series. In fact, that was really where I got into cutting comedy because uh, I was a, I, the first year I you know, had no idea I was putting the shows together not doing cutting the sketches and then I asked to move on and they very kindly and bravely gave me the chance to uh, cut some sketches in series two and three and four and, and carried on to be lead editor uh, up to series five when I left right well we'll come on to that in uh, due course and delve into it a little bit but um, the first question I'd like to ask everyone is rewind to you know period in your life between the ages of five and ten maybe if at that time someone had asked you what you would like to be when you grow up what hmm. would you have replied uh brain surgeon <laughs> really actually brain surgeon wow yeah yeah i wanted to be a brain surgeon uh, i don't know why i was gonna say what was the the influence there i think it was uh, uh my granddad was a surgeon and so I was like, yeah, I'll do that. But brains are funnier and more interesting than hearts or every, I think it was heart surgeon. And uh, I'm probably wrong now. I can't remember. Were you a big fan? There was a film in the 80s, I think it was the 80s, early 80s, called The Man With Two Brains. Was that <laughs> on your radar? Steve Martin. I was a massive fan of The Man With Two Brains. Um, what was you, you were going to allude to after that period of being a brain surgeon, there was something else you wanted to be? Oh, actor. It's the obvious actor. leap. Actor oh. in my early... Yeah, sorry, probably near a 10 to 12 actor, definitely. My parent, I remember asking my parents if I could go to drama school and then there was this, there was this stony silence. <laughs> and uh, being quite sensitive to stony silences, you know, I was very aware of what that meant, which is we can't afford it, you're not going. They don't remember that conversation. I remember it vividly. And it was probably like an eight-second conversation in my life, but to me it was like... It was a real kick in the teeth. And, 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 and they probably don't remember it because I, I probably didn't make a big thing of it. They, I probably just went, I want to go to drama school, though we can't afford it, and that was it. But I feel like, I feel like it was quite a big, a big turning point for me uh, away from thinking it wasn't achievable. But how funny as well, though, that it's the drama isn't seen as sort of like a credible yeah. career path. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, come on. And I felt the same about writing as well. Like, I wanted to be a writer later, and I wanted to be a director at one point, but I still felt that. I still felt that people, uh, like our, my parents, you know, like their attitude was that it wasn't a credible career. I mean, to think of the careers that kids these days are going to have, I mean, it's you couldn't have imagined them 20 years ago. They're not real. I mean, watching my kids watch gamers or watching YouTubers watching stuff, it's like, this is mad. This is just... There's so much con- 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 so many consumables in the media. Even in spite of 
that kind of almost sort of resistance, be it generational or, or cultural or whatever, you did end up end up working in in media. So what was your kind of route from from wanting to be a brain surgeon uh, to <laughs> to, uh, to working as an editor? I like to think that editing is a mixture of acting and brain surgery. It's not. Um, I went to college in Amersham and I shot, I wrote and shot a project uh, with a few other people. They were really lazy. I loved them dearly. They're lovely people, but they wouldn't help with the writing or the storyboarding. So I had to do it all by myself. And when we shot it, that's the point where they all started pitching in and asking to change the shots, change the script, change the actions. So we came to the edit with this mishmash of crap uh, it was awful but I, honestly as soon as I touched that kit we were working on VHS tape to tape as soon as I did it I was like okay there's something special here I could feel that it was appealing to the sort of creative nerdery that I had anyway which is sort of came from loving computer games and enjoying films there was something about controlling it and then we went and rewrote it in the edit it was utter crap, the final product, and we were told so in our in our in our evaluation by our tutors. Like this, we were laughing our heads off. We actually got the two main actors to voice each other's performances because it was so bad that we thought the big guy should do the little guy's voice and the little guy should do the big guy's voice, and that was that was our only concept. And honestly, that was it. But from a, from a comedy perspective, that's kind of interesting as well. Though. It wasn't meant to be a comedy. Oh. <laughs> It became a comedy. I think that's what the tutors were annoyed about. It was like, this is... I mean, some of the stuff people actually made, and in, in fairness, made by themselves, was a, was amazing. And it was surreal. You know, I wanted to write and direct, <clears throat> but the truth is I didn't know what editing was. And I took something that was truly bad, and although I didn't make it worse, we made it into something completely different, and that appealed. Um, and from that moment on, I was like, oh, no, I, I think I want to be an editor. Um... I didn't think I didn't have the. It's a similar thing with the with the acting thing. It didn't take me many knockbacks for me to say, I am not going to be a director because I could see there were problems. I didn't feel like I could rely on the people around me at the time because it wasn't uni; it was college. No one was serious about filmmaking. It was a broad media course, so some of those people probably went on to write or do whatever, but they didn't want to do filmmaking per se. So, so for me, I was like, I did want to make something somehow. But I didn't feel like I could rely on those people. So the editing felt like an area I could take on, rely on myself. You only had to rely on yourself, really. Uh, and certainly went on to shoot very simple title sequences for stuff. But it's also the area I got, I actually strangely got most criticism. I had my head of my course said to me, You're, she really ripped apart a title sequence I'd done. She thought it was terrible. And there was another guy that said I would never be an editor, which is interesting because that didn't put me off. That, I think that shows when you have a level of interest in an area, um, it takes a lot more to put you off. So I was like, oh, screw these people. I'm gonna just going to keep going. And then the, my tutor, my video tutor, there was a luckily a post-production house uh, edit facility about three miles away <clears throat> called Lynx Digital. And he knew an editor there, and he had been for a beer with him and said they needed a runner. And so I was about to apply to university, I sort of bypassed uni, got a job as a T-boy at this little edit house uh, and worked my way up. But but yeah. So that that's interesting about deciding to go and sort of 
I suppose almost the traditional route of being a runner and sort of you know getting your foot in the door there rather than university what was the kind of critical decision there for you what did you see did you see one as like being more advantageous than the other or just one sort of fitting the way that you kind of work or learn better um I think uh essentially I, I it came from work experience at GMTV weirdly uh the decision sorry this helped the decision I went to do work experience at GMTV and I knew I liked the edit suites <clears throat> and I was really keen on sitting in with this editor who was working on the edit box there uh and I remember just watching it and just being absolutely fascinated by having hands-on experience being able to see the kit and he would talk me through what he was doing, looking at the way that they... Because it, it's, it's not an editing bit of kit, really, edit box. It was more for visual effects and short-form promo stuff at that point. I don't think edit box is even still around. But um, I knew that seeing it and being around it, I would learn more faster. And I think when you're engaged, it's like, you know, it's like with the young kids. When you see them engage with something, they learn ten times faster. If you have to plough through two years of stuff or four, three years of stuff to get to the thing you want and you only get 10% of your time doing the thing you want. You know, I was very focused. I knew I wanted to get a job in telly, uh, I, sorry, in editing. I didn't really care what I cut. I didn't have that, um, I didn't have tons of self-belief or uh, self-awareness to know that I wanted to do film or I wanted to cut drama or I wanted to cut sport. I was like, I just want to cut. I just want to get my hands on the kit. Um, so at what point did... Do you start to sort of decide that comedy was where your strengths lay? Weirdly, it was it was sort of forced on me in a nice way. Um, I was working in kids' telly, so I'd worked up through preschool. Um, the Teletubbies was the first thing I edited. The the inserts Teletubbies, and I, and I used to do the the finishing in an online tape suite as well, which is a massive massive suite now with a vision mixer and a, a separate effects box called a DVE and all this stuff. It was really hard, but I found the time pressure and finishing really stressful, um, weirdly. And, but when I went to work in London, I was poached when I was 22 to start a post house in London called platform. Um, I was finishing my own projects and I didn't realize the bit I didn't like most was the finishing the, the detail and the, I liked color grading. I liked mixing sound I didn't like the, the, the tech side of it. And strangely, someone came into platform and bought into the company and removed that from my job, not intentionally, but they were better at it. And they were going to be part, uh, you know, a bigger part of the company. And th at that point, I was sort of forced back into cutting, the offlining, you know, cutting from scratch. Um, at a time when I was ready to do it, I, you know, I, and I was, I was turned down for this fairly naff kid show, which really broke my heart because those rejections are hard when you're 25. Uh, but I was then offered Horrible Histories because I knew the producer from a kid show I'd done as a caption generator up at this other facility, you know, doing captions and credits and stuff. Um, and, yeah, I was I was sort of pulled into it by accident. I had cut comedy. I'd done a lot of chuckle vision. <clears throat> but what you don't realise about cutting chuckle vision is those people perform at the correct speed for comedy. I mean... Comedy rhythm, you know, it's fast and tight. You know, it should be, and it should have breaths where it needs breaths, and good performers do that naturally. Horrible histories, they're amazing comedy performers. They really are incredible, but the editor, you help. You help structure that rhythm. 
Uh, and Nigel Williams taught me that on series two. He was like, just take all the air out of it. Take every breath out and then see where you are and see how it fits. Because the scripts are tight. Performances are amazing. So then you've just got to find this, 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 this balance where they're serving each other and not one is overwhelming the other. Yeah. You know. And is, is anything, is there any, because the Chuckle Brothers was quite sort of slapstick, is that anything to do with the sort of the difference in genre that sort of Horrible Histories is perhaps more narrative and structured versus the slapstick? Is that, does that influence performance? Yeah, completely. And I think there's a, the, what the acts in Horrible Histories did, which, uh, which they've gone on to do, which was amazing, is they would turn around five, you know, sometimes five characters a day in five different sketches, some of them, you know, maybe three to five. And what they would do, which is incredible, is to, and they'll bring completely fresh, different characters every time they step onto a new set in a different era, in a different costume. Suddenly they're doing, you know, they're doing a Spartan warrior where one of them is the comedy foil for the sketch and the other one's serious, the straight man. And then, then they would switch or go with another actor and do a Tudor period or whatever. I mean, it didn't work so much like that because they'd have to obviously build sets in different locations. But sometimes they would, they'd walk out of one thing have a little break. They're back into another one. They're bringing a whole new, whole new thing. But what you don't want with a sketch show, a kids' sketch show particularly, is you don't want it to outstay its welcome. So while they would shoot, sometimes you'd have a five-minute sketch, and they're amazing in their first cut, and you put every little breath, every little amazing bit in. You then look at it and go, well, that's going to completely knacker the episode in terms of its rhythm. So you have to then go, okay. We've got a long version, that's great. We can go to all the little nuances of the performances in this cut, but then you're going to go, right, now let's do the two-minute version of this, keeping all the facts, because they're the most important thing for the show, actually. So in a way, you're you're almost editing editing the script, because it's been pre-written, it's been performed, it is as it is, but then you have to sort of do a cut-down. So you're making critical decisions in that instance as to, okay, how do we keep the facts in, but then also keep the comedy, and then actually making a decision about what are the funniest bits and which bits of comedy stay in. Yeah, and as you go on, the editor has more control. At that stage, I was so lucky because I was working with some amazing people like Caroline Norris, uh, Dominic Brigstock, Giles Pilbrow, Steve Connolly, who were really good script people who would go... They were really ballsy because when you're young and you're cutting, you want to put it all in. You want to go, yeah, yeah, this is my choice. These are my decisions. This is, this is my thing. And they'd go, take all of that out. And you'd go, what? Are you mad? You'd do it and you'd slap it together and you'd go, that is so much better. And they would teach you that you're wrong, and that's really good. I think when you're in an edit suite in narrative, well, that was just sketch, but in narrative comedy and in editing in general, it's good to be proven wrong quite a lot because it makes you understand that good ideas don't just come from that. They could be wrong as well, but good ideas can come from anywhere. So it's really important to listen to ideas, try the ideas, don't just poo-poo them. I always do this. There's a director I'm working with at the moment who's brilliant, and he gave me this idea. I was like, that isn't going to work. And I went, I actually said, I was like, this isn't going to work. And in 10 minutes when it does work, I'm going to apologise. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it, he was right. He was. He saw something I couldn't see. Uh, and you have to sort of take that as uh, as liberating rather than crit- criticising you. You know, you'd be liberated by the change, not inhibited by it. You know what I mean? And I suppose it's, it's, a, I think it's interesting because this is a theme that keeps coming up with different episodes is like the sort of approaching something with curiosity because it's like, okay, well, I've not thought of that angle, but let's, let's see what works. And then when it does work, it's like, okay, well, great. And then obviously that's then a great learning experience, which you can sort of take on and and sort of run with yourself. Yeah. Just going back then to, I'm always interested in mistakes or failures because I think in a strange way, 
I certainly learn more from mistakes than I do from successes because if I if something works, then I'm just sort of quickly move on to the next thing. Um, going back to those sort of early days, can you what was the sort of can you think of like the biggest um, mistake you made or one of the biggest things that you learnt the hard way? Oh well, the <laughs> one of the ones that stands out was being walked out of an edit in the first half an hour of it starting, but that was because I was being tested by the post house you know i was like i think i was like 20 years old so you were being walked you were walked out of the room i was walked out no i mean walked out is a dramatic way of putting it but i was doing a thing my mate steve charles who's the guy who got me the job at links um uh i say got me the job he got me the interview um he's a brilliant brilliant editor and he he put me into this edit and i was like completely out of my depth the client hadn't been told I was going to be in the room doing it. They had known me as a runner, you know, not long before. And it's a big job. It was a big client and they were, it was a big deal. And I was, I screwed it up. I mean, it was like the first, within the first 10 minutes, I could feel it. They could feel it. They went out and made a, they went out. And then five minutes later, Steve came in and went, Mike, I'm just going to, do you want to come and uh, do this or whatever? It was really, really painful. Yeah. But I, they were right. Yeah. 100%. That wasn't that was like I was surprised I was given the chance to be mm. honest. It was a mis- it was a mistake. And what um, was so what was the big take what was your takeaway from that? I mean once you'd recovered because I imagine it took a while to sort of get over that. The big takeaway I suppose is you have to support your juniors. I really 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 believe in supporting young editors coming up so they don't get into an edit suite and feel exposed, you know, awkward. Like, it's crippling to have anxiety with a client next to you. Mm. They're sitting there all day sometimes, and if you don't know what you're doing, that's hard. So I'm like, get them on the kit, get them cutting as much as they can, get them to pick a scene, do that scene, let's talk about what you did and what your decisions were and what your process was, because when you sit with someone that first time, you don't want to shit yourself you want to just be ready. You want to know your footage. I want to give them as much process as I can from a post, you know, from our perspective in post-production so that when they get there, they're like the kit's second nature. I know what my process is. I know all the rushes. So now all we've got to do is have fun. Um, Because like you say, a playful, I think that's the thing. You, You need to be able to be playful and see past the story to something that could be better. Mm. And you need to be able to reinvent the rushes in, in a, you know, on a dime. You need to be able to go, actually, I think this is you're taking the pressure out too early. There's not enough pressure here. The comedy would be funnier if this went there. So, yeah, I just think you need to be able to support people who, who have less experience. And I think that's what that, that did. Was it clarified that I don't want anyone to have that feeling? <laughs> it was the sink or swim and that time I sank. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to to go on and swim um i'll just pick up on something as well you said there mike is um you're talking about um the idea that yeah when you're sitting next to a client you don't want to be nervous so it sounds like there's a level of preparation first of all knowing the kit which is obviously something which comes with experience but the other thing you mentioned was knowing the rushes so is that the idea that before the client comes into the room, you've gone through those rushes and you kind of know them inside out and back to front so that you can make them feel comfortable and just sort of like, you know, as you say, in your own words, sort of have fun with it? Yeah, I think for me, I'm quite 
and so, lots of editors are, but quite obsessive. So for me, I have a process. If I'm editing the assemblies while they're shooting, I'll have had exposure to the rushes all the time anyway. But the process I use means I watch them all twice before I make cuts. So I watch the rushes and I make a reel of stuff I like, and then I watch the reel I like and make my decisions. So familiarity means you could be confident. And if I'm not confident that my decision is the best for the scene or the episode or whatever, or for the director's note, then I won't feel like I've done my job properly. And that there's a niggling feeling it could be better. And you only, I only like to lock when that feeling goes away. Because things catch your eye as an editor that won't catch anyone else's eye, but you know what they are and you can see them and go, oh, that cut should be three frames later or early or whatever. And until you've tried it and done it and proved yourself you're right or wrong, because no one else will care about those three frames. But subconsciously, the viewer will, it will bump less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's those, those sort of small percentage increments that, you know, most people won't notice, but you know over over a long period of time or over a, an edit of a whole thing will make a difference to the pacing and the rhythm of, of the, the whole. Um, and do you, do you still get it now sometimes where you sort of start a project and you sort of like sitting next to the client and feel a bit nervous? Oh, massively. Um, yeah, I do, but it's a different kind of nervous, I suppose, but I still get nervous. I had, I'd loads, I do a big job for sister who made Chernobyl and there are, incredible company and they're making some really amazing stuff and I did a big zoom with them and with the director and Stacey Gregg who's the director of the, the block I did one of the blocks I did she did this thing and I was so it was so clever she pretended to be frozen on zoom in the first five seconds of talking uh and I laughed so hard that I was like okay this is going to be fine because it was just the two of us we were the first to log in you know, and she said, hi, nice to meet you. She's really lovely. Uh, and she did this freeze. And I was like, oh, it's, I was glitched. Oh, no, what's going to happen? And she just burst in, like, <laughs> moved. Yeah. And I thought, well, that is such a good way to, dis- you know, dissipate tension. And and I was like, oh, I'll be so grateful to her forever for that. Because I think that interview went well because of her doing that. Not because I was, maybe not because I was right for the job. <laughs> I, think I, I don't think I'm wrong for the job. And I, I really wanted to do it. But I was nervous, you know. So these are really... You know, really, it's a really cool company and really nice, successful people. Yeah, and uh, you know, well, it, yeah, it's it's funny because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what level of experience you have in any industry, and certainly some of the, you know, even speaking to some of the composers, you know, one of them who's been at it for 30, 40 years, there's still that, particularly when it's something creative as well, and you're sort of pouring your kind of heart and soul into something. It's there's a there's a level of kind of anxiety that comes with that that I think will never go away. But I think maybe it's there's almost reframing that anxiety as sort of like almost an excitement um, or or certainly just, you know, not allowing it to sort of um, freeze you um, or sort of, you know, hold you back in any way. My friend Steve said a similar thing. He, he used to say, he said something to me which was quite revealing when I was a tech assistant, uh, a, a linear suite assistant when I was doing captions and you're running out of libraries getting tapes and I would break a sweat running. I was a runner that ran and I did sweat. Mm. And he went to me not all clients want to see you flapping, essentially. He didn't say it that, that like that, but that's what he meant. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really cotton on to what he meant for a long time, but I was tapping into that nervous energy to fuel a performance that would be, you know, I, I say performance, you know, like a a job performance um, to be at a level that, that was the best I could be. And, and you do use anxiety as a fuel, mm. 
it gets harder as you get older because it's not necessarily the most relaxing thing to be around when you have personal relationships to maintain yeah. because you're, you're wound pretty tight. But you can redirect it, like you say. You can re- redirect it to be excitement. You can redirect it to be... I mean, often making jokes is a way we dissipate tension, isn't it? And I think I'm very guilty of... If there's a, a pause or a beat of, of awkwardness, I'll tend to try and... Crack a joke. Smash it down with a joke, <laughs> which can work. And I, I did it on a call with HBO, where there's this brilliant, H- successful HBO exec sitting there. I did one, I was like, there's this little pause, and thank God one of them laughed. <laughs> And I was like, that that was like a moment of like, oh, I've done it, I've gone too far. I've made a joke at the wrong time. I think I think we've all been there, haven't we? We've sort of cracked that cracked the joke, which in our minds at the time sounded great, and then when you deliver it, you sort of go, There's that moment of like, oh well, was that over the over the mark? And you but then if you get a response you go, phew, at yeah. least someone else has got bad taste like me. <laughs> Just pick up as well on something you said as well about um, you've been working in you know, the past couple of years. You've been really lucky because a couple of the projects you've you've had more sort of creative um, free reign on. Is that um, is that something that's come with experience and you kind of know creatively what you want to do, or is it purely that you've kind of got a level of experience where people, or is it, or is it more kind of a case that these people are more open to having their editor be, you know, more creative? And to what extent can you? get creative and kind of almost be a, not irreverent as such, but kind of do things a, a bit differently. Uh, each, I mean, it's, it, there's a few things there. Each job is so different. So like experience gives you trust. So people trust you. If you've got it done a show like Yonderland, I did off the back of horrible histories because the director, Steve Connolly said, I, he wanted me to do it and that was it. He insisted. So I think Sky at the first were a bit reluctant, so a working title, because I'd not done much narrative, and fair enough, I mean, but I had cut the cast a lot, and the cast knew me, and the cast liked, um, the cast liked the way I watched their performances. They knew I would watch everything. It wasn't just the good takes, I would watch every single take and, and mine their stuff. They knew I was a big fan of theirs anyway. I was a fan of those actors. I was a fan of the scripts. And so that took me on. So the direction of, of choice there was was like, well, I have to do this job. That's amazing. And then I got a couple of other comedies. And after that, once you've done a few things, that, and you go move into storylines and you know much more narrative-based stuff, yeah, people just trust you more. They trust you because of your track record. Um, but there she, there, uh, there she Goes, which is a show with David Tennant and Jessica Hines about they've got a, 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 a kid with a chromosomal disorder, um, that was bleak in, uh, in places. So comedy doesn't come into it. They wanted me an editor who could deal with the comedy. And inadvertently, I'm thrown into the biggest drama I've ever done. And you start to realise that actually what you're being paid for is your instinct. So they've trusted you. You've, you've got a good track record with shows you keep getting recommissioned. You get this show because you've done another show for that company. And suddenly you're doing this thing. Now that thing then informs the next thing you're offered because that's a big critical hit. So then the next thing you're trusted with more drama again. And because you did the one with drama in it, you're allowed to do a bit more of your, you know, allowed to put a bit more of your voice into this one. It depends on your director, but if a director trusts you, generally they will sit with you and not change too much, weirdly. Yeah, and I suppose whether or not they're a complete control freak. <laughs> yeah, I haven't worked with, I haven't worked with any f- finger clickers for a while. Um, oh, oh, what, finger clickers? People who click their fingers at you where they want you to cut. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, that's a that's a thing. As in giving you a rhythm or something? Uh, no, actually clicking at the. Oh, just like as you would in a restaurant, like garçon. 
Yeah, a little bit like that. <laughs> I went to this uh, conference years ago, um, you know, sort of panel shows, and there's one of the composers. I asked the question, you know, do you is it a good idea to specialize or to be sort of to be able to do lots of different genres now he at the time said to me i do lots of different genres because that means there's a greater pool of work open for you i'd actually disagree with that now i think a level of specialization is important but you don't necessarily have to drill down into sort of being super specific so like you know for me just only doing folk music but at the same time me not trying to sort of get in on a sort of maybe at a I was going to say hip hop, although I'm actually working on some hip hop at the moment. Uh, let's say um, dubstep. Um, but yeah, so the question to you is: I can, you know, similarly within the industry, obviously starting out working on Teletubbies and Chucklevision, have you sort of like made choices and chosen to turn jobs down in order to sort of help guide the path that you've taken? They've kind of chosen me. There are things I wouldn't turn down, like Ghosts, for example. When they said came to me for Ghosts, I did the pilot. Uh, and I'd done Yonderland, all three series of that. Uh, so they wanted me to do it. In fact, I was chosen to cut that before the director was chosen, which is a, such a huge compliment that I think, you, and you know, that, that level of uh, trust and, you know, professional respect doesn't come around that often. And I was really happy to be on board with those, those people. I really love working with them. There have been jobs that have come up I've hoped to get and there have been other options, but it's not really turning other ones down. It's more trying to get the one you want as opposed to thinking of it as I think about it more positively you know what I mean like you go this is the route that I want to go out of the three options it's that one and, and, and luckily you can choose sometimes sometimes there's only one thing on the table and you go I'll just have to fill the gap but, uh, but I know what you're saying about, about having multiple things in terms of composers it is hard you do go to people because of their voice so if you have a wide you know wide selection of styles um, then it is harder to go to understand yeah. that voice. Do you do you feel you have a voice as an editor? Is that something editors mm. have? Yeah, I think they do. I didn't know it until my friend Bridge Williams. She's she's brilliant. Uh, she came and watched a cut of a scene. I think it was Bridge, and she went, she went, "Oh, it's very you." <laughs> and I was like, "I don't know. I actually don't know what you mean." I actually don't understand what you're saying, but um, I think as I go on, I do know what I'm, what she's saying, and sometimes it's and and so you're. I sometimes you fight against it because that comedy rhythm of keeping everything tight can actually ruin stuff in the end. Because sometimes, you know, there are certain scenes I've cut recently with more the more of the more you know drama based performers where you realise they don't... Some people don't deliver their lines very well, but all their thought processes are before and after their lines. You see it on their faces, so you're offline for a good reason. You cut to them, or you hold on them, because everything they're telling you is 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 before the words they say. And then you start to analyse whether the dialogue's needed at all, so... Interesting. So, yeah. I think that, I think you do have a voice, but not the sa- not in the same way. You're always trying to serve another voice, sure. or multiple voices. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, so again. This is something that has come up a bit as well as like, basically, we're all kind of creatively influenced by what we've sort of grown up watching or listening to. 
Um, and because those influences change on, a, you know, each individual person has lots of different influences and they're sort of drawing on those influences, but hopefully they're drawing on those influ different influences in a slightly different way each time, which hopefully then leads to sort of creating a, um, a unique voice. But yeah, it's interesting to think as well that, you know, editors have that as well, because I can hear it with music. I can, certain people, I, you know, I can hear a piece of music and go, yep, I know who that is instantly. Um, I don't have the kind of familiarity with editing to do that but it sounds like it's it is there you probably shouldn't as well i think i you know ideally your the voice the voices you're hearing are predominantly uh the writers the performers the director you know like not necessarily in that order obviously um uh, so i don't think the the problem is for me is like some, when i see something i don't like the way it's cut it's because they've left the wrong left performances in i don't like so there's an element there where I go, is that the inexperience of a producer, a director or an editor that are not seeing that that performance is not as good or not as consistent as as a previous scene or a previous episode or the character takes a turn that you just go, oh, I doesn't feel very, you know, very much like that character would do that. So, you know, there's tons of tons of sort of, you know, detail where, especially if you're doing a series one, where you're looking, often looking for a for a character to an actor to find their character, and you're waiting for it, and then they do something in, in week three, and you'll go, there it is with that. Let's go back and let's go back and sort out that scene from week one where they didn't get it, because now I know where we're we're heading to. That's the character there. It doesn't happen very often because actors are you know usually are very very good, but you see stuff where characters actors are good at comedy, they're not good at drama. So you're often working hard to rebalance them to match match everyone else. To make them funny if they're not being funny. Or make make them not funny at times when they're trying too hard to lean on a joke or or someone else in the scene is absolutely ruining it. You take all their dialogue out. You just go, we can't have you, you know, we can't keep this. It's not, it's not helping the integrity of this show overall. So then your voice is actually not about the cuts, but it's about the tonal choices you make with the performances. Mm. Um, you mentioned ghosts um, a few minutes ago, which is probably a good segue into uh, going under the skin. Under the skin. But yeah, I'd like to sort of chat about ghosts, but as well, particularly something that you've you've kept drawing on, Mike, is um, you've kept mentioning rhythm, um, which is I've often thought. I've often thought the editors that I feel kind of do the best job with music are the ones that have a, a particularly good sense of rhythm. But it sounds like, you know, basically all editors have to have a good sense of rhythm because you're, there's, there's, a, there's pacing to what you're, you're editing to the, to the way you're cutting. Um, tell us a bit about uh, Ghosts and sort of when that project came in, because it says, it says you got to cut the pilot before there was even a director. Um, how did you sort of approach that? And specifically, you know, what kind of choices you, were you making about music? So, weirdly, the evolution of the Ghosts music comes off the back of Yonderland, which comes off the back of Horrible Histories. Because the one thing I would say that I did okay on Horrible Histories, when I, even when I wasn't working uh, at my you know, full experience, was that I would pick good tracks and know when to bring them on and off for comedy. So, so with you know, using library tracks and Horrible Histories, you would often use, in a three-minute sketch, you'd use four bits of music, right? especially in the adverts and the commercials and the you would you you pick your music you would do your dramatic builds and then you'd undercut it so I'd use music to 
illustrate the comedy undercuts, which is something you could do more easily then. It's not as cool now, but uh, and Yonderland was the same sort of thing. The the type of humour they do, Yonderland was a pastiche, you know, like a um, it isn't isn't spoofing, but it it's kind of is. It's it's in that fantasy world. It was around. I think it was around the start of Game of Thrones and stuff like that. So we would use overly, overtly dramatic music to make it more ridiculous. So Ghosts was a similar thing. When we started it, we were like, well, I'm going to do that. Because that's the way they write. They write really funny builds and undercuts. The one that you would say about that team of writers and performers is they have a great page rhythm. So their gag counts are high. Their stories are tight. It's very rare you go to an episode and go, this just doesn't work as an assembly. So with the pilot, I was very much following on from, we're going to do the genre piece with the library music because it was all library in the, in, the, in the pilot. We're going to use creepy, proper creepy music. We're going to go scour the, the libraries and just find pieces that, set, that sell this as a proper ghost story. And then we're going to undercut it. And then we're going to build it in another thing and then we're going to undercut it again. So that brings the, 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 the pressure and release of comedy and drama. When you, when, you say, when you say undercut, what do you mean? Oh, well, you build something up as being serious and then you pull the rug out and then you show it's something stupid. And a lot of gags are like, they're set up and pay off, set up and pay off. You know, that that's a lot of the time. Apart from the fast rhythm dialogue, what happens internally in a scene, often there's a, there's a build towards something and they get to a traumatic peak and then you just fall off the edge and it's not dramatic at all and when you're so when you're undercutting something like that you're building up presumably the, the music is helping build it up when you undercut it are you doing that with another piece of music or with silence i like to use silence as a weapon <laughs> as a weapon <laughs> as a weapon of mass destruction right right so it's like um and even in drama like the silence and awkwardness in in drama like there's there had a great guy assembling on the baby recently and he'd scored this scene and I was like, I took it off and watched it and went, this is better without music because it's more real. Because often, often you accentuate beats. You know, my first pass, I overscore everything. I, I definitely score it, especially if I haven't got all the scenes. I'll be like, I'll score here, I'll score there. And then you go, okay, let's strip it back. Let's take it all off and let's go, well, I definitely need some here for the story. I need some here for the drama. I need something here for the joke. Um, so you can pick your moments of where is it really going to work and where is it going to work best because there hasn't been too much so so with ghosts it would be to drop it off and leave silence usually you build 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 tension and then have it reverb out or whatever but by the time we got to the series we used library as temp and then we had a composer so so there was that because he wanted to get we need to give it a singular voice and you can't do that with library very easily unless you're going for quite broad instrumentation that would work for multi-genre sort of, you know, you just go, if you just go classical, that's sort of okay. If you just go period, that's okay. But we had loads of characters from different periods. So we would use those periods. Uh, sometimes we'd use pieces of music that feel like those periods to help us just sell those bits, those time changes, those time jumps. Um, but then we would use our composer's music for our modern day score. In fact, I think we kept some library on, I think we did keep quite a bit of library on series two and three where we would just have beds in the Tudor period, for example. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how closely, cause this is something that we composers, 
well, it's a double-edged sword sometimes, the temp music. Sometimes uh, your editors and directors can become so attached to the temp music that anything short of the composer recreating that doesn't work. But then actually sometimes it's very useful because it provides a really good starting point. How closely does the composer's music sort of match what was in there as a temp score or is it sometimes you know kind of wildly different from what was in there but it's just the tone and the the, the, the pace of it is the same yeah so i think uh on the baby for example the the composer she's lucretia dot she's just incredible but her voice is so different to anything i've heard i try now we're deep into the series i try to use all of her stuff as our temps um and she had a back a back catalogue one Gary Dolner cut the first ep. He cut Fleabag. He's a brilliant, brilliant editor. Um, and he cut episode three as well. Um, he had been through the composer stuff with our, our um, with Nikki Cassell, who directed some of Watchmen. So they'd been through choosing the composer with the execs. So by the time I came on board, they'd already chosen her. So I worked pretty hard to stay within her palettes. So she had she's done a couple of horror films. She's got a load of commercial music, you know. She's a she's a really talented person. So I think that how would you, how would you describe her creative voice? Oh, I don't think I should. I think you should listen okay. to it. I think it'd be unfair. I think she's got. Oh, she uses these incredibly interesting like sort of these sort. They sound like they are vocals, but they're not words. They're sort of like pitched. Sort of, sort of atmospheric, sort of screaming. I don't want to do it. She's just brilliant. Uh, you'd have to listen to it. I think honestly, Lucretia Dolt. She, she's just she creates atmosphere in a way that I've not heard uh, many people do. She's just she's just great, um, and she's also very receptive to, to 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 what we do in the edit. So for me, I'd be like, okay, I'm hitting this beat. I'd use four of her temp tracks that don't go together necessarily, and go. This bit I'd like. I like this noise on. We like the, we like this noise on this bit. We like this noise on this bit, and it needs to build to this bit, and then it needs to be out. And that's sort of what we would do: is we'd build structure the story of the music um, around the scene, and then go. Can you please make that work as one piece? And there are bits that stay, and the bits that there are bits that go, and there are bits that have been used in other films. You can't use them, so she'd be like, okay, what do you like about this? Would describe the atmosphere and the mood and the and the and the. But there are story beats you mm, want to hear. Okay, yeah. And so I'm like, oh, that is cut. That needs to rise to that look because that look tells us this part of the story. Do you know what I mean? So I think that really you try and tell the story with the music and then give it to someone who knows what the hell they're doing to sort it out. I try not to be too offensive musically. <laughs> like I have done it. I have Yonderland was all scored with library because it was a silly show. You could do that. You could be, you know, build this ridiculous classical landscape and then you know, and then sort of it's mocking itself. It's sort of taking itself too seriously to make it funnier. You know, yeah. Are there, are there shows where you think, I mean, Yonderland obviously is an example, but are there other shows as well where you think actually uh, library music or production music works better than having composed music? Um, no, I don't, I don't think so because, only because the that you want to ha- have a single you do want to have a single voice throughout ideally um so, so i mean in honesty sometimes i with some temp stuff i put in i i avoid getting too near because i think people will fall in love with it 
and so if you go if you work too hard making it I, I like to fit it I like to I like to tailor it which is the hardest bit so but if you go too close people will go on oh, I prefer that and that's why with Lucretia stuff it's great because you know what she comes back with won't be what if you put do have I have I've had to put a couple of bits of library because we didn't have something from her palette ready for a certain scene but you know what she brings back will be better because it will be her voice and um uh and some composers who work in you know Connie and stuff and you yeah you hand over an action sequence so it's not in their palette at all and go right make that sci-fi can you do a sci-fi chase scene and they can do it so quickly it's remarkable but that would be the sort of composer who can do multi-voices can do multiple sort of expressions within you know with different shows they'll do this show and they'll do that show and they're completely different so there's a, there's a there's an element of there are places for composers like that, but there aren't loads of places. For no, them. that's interesting. And do, so, on the shows that you've worked on, do you, do you see it that the vast majority of composers do have a sort of specific voice rather than sort of? I definitely think in the higher budget areas, they um, they seem to be. Yeah, it seems to be that you've heard what they've done and you want to go for some of that. So yeah, I think so. I think in the lower end, the lower budget stuff like in, especially in comedy you get people who have got multi multi-faceted sort of you know skill sets um so yeah i'll preface this question with why i'm asking because finding that this this so find you know finding your voice as a creator i think is something is it's come up in in previous episodes and um do think it's really important i actually think it's harder to do it's it's easier to easier said than done um you know finding a unique voice and finding what it is and what uh, one of my guests todd talked about and you mentioned it a bit earlier as well actually is like for him and for many people it's about learning the mechanics of what's going on so that you can get something sounding really good and then once you can do that then you have the freedom to sort of explore the voice a bit and that sort of goes back to what you were saying about knowing the rushes uh, knowing the equipment and then once the sort of mechanics are in place and you can get stuff looking good then that's when you can start to have fun with it um but I, there's been a couple of things that i've worked on whereby there's been a specific voice and specific thing in mind but because of conflicting opinions between decision makers whether those are producers or directors or whoever that there's ended up sort of like being these blurred lines where actually I feel like the voice has been lost. And I suppose the reason I'm asking the question is I sort of want affirmation that it's not just happening to me, that that actually does you have, is that something that you've come across whereby the voice has somewhat been lost by having lots of people uh, having the input? It's a really, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting thing with music because some people can talk about music and some people can't. And I think the problem is a lot of execs can't talk about music. And that, that's, I know that's, that's, not, that's not fair, actually. A lot of people can't talk about music. And, and, and just percent, playing the numbers, some of those will be execs, some of them will be, you know, whatever. So I've had situations in edits where I'm talking to the composer, translating what the execs mean about music. Because they've had a fundamental disagreement, a producer and an exec, for example, they'll argue about an argument, they'll discuss a piece of music or type music, and then I'll go to the composer and translate what they're talking about. Yeah. Interesting. Which is fans fascinating. It's the same with colour space, like in grades. I've been with directors who need me in the grade because they can't talk about colour. They know what they mean and they know what it, what it means to, to, to feel something about the colour space, but they can't articulate it. 
it's not as common that one that's quite niche but I, you know it's like i don't know it's like it's like being able to talk about the certain percussive beat like you say like there's a reason why it's there there's a reason why it sounds like that i love that we were saying about mechanics though in terms of um the quality of music something people can hear when they're allowed to is if they listen to something on cans and they hear music they should have a reaction to it if it sounds good i think and i certainly have very strong reactions to music uh very quickly uh, we've talked about this before but sometimes in horror histories i look to fi- lift it, listen to 50 tracks for one cue or you know i'll just but i'll listen to the first 10 seconds and look at the waveform and i'm looking at the waveform going has this got the start i need has it got the build i need has it got an ending and that's what i'm doing i'm looking at the, the shape of the, the the literal visual shape of the sound and going okay yeah that's got a brilliant opening because it's obviously for comedy you go it's a brilliant dramatic opening i love the drums i love the orchestra has it got a middle section okay there's too many instruments in that middle section has it got another layer that i can take out and has it got an ending so and in that first five seconds what which, what element is it what is it that that kind of resonates the most what is it you're listening for uh, feeling if you're yeah yeah i think you're you you need Obviously, it's picture dependent. So generally, like if I'm auditioning temp tracks for a series, I just need to have a reaction to it first. So generally, it has to be an emotional reaction like, oh, that's cute. That's that's got my attention. It doesn't take long. And it could be that they, they, I happen to do 10 tracks with strings and suddenly there's an oboe. And I'll go, oh, that's interesting. You know, and I'll get I'll get it and I'll go, you know, I don't know what that's for yet. And I'll download it and I'll put it in a, in a folder ready for when I'm looking for, and I'll just keep going through them and cycling through them, knowing that there's something in there and I'll label them, you know, this was mysterious. This was, this was, um, more spooky, traditional sort of traditional horror or whatever it might be. Um, but it's just that, I think it's reaction. It's just that reaction. If you have, if you feel something, then you listen on a bit more. Um, and then obviously instrumentation as well. Sometimes you just go, that's been recorded and you hear it and you go, wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's quite tricky because obviously as composers, we, you know, I spend quite a lot of time trying to second guess what the listener's reaction is going to be and how they're going to react to the piece of music. And I think certainly with production music, something assigned quite a high importance is um the initial five seconds because if you can't get someone's attention in the first five seconds then the chances are they'll you know particularly someone you know as you say you're looking for sort of hundreds of cues and you're going through hundreds of cues it's like yes yes no 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 there's that that split second once you've got that five seconds and it's interested you then you're sort of looking at the waveform going okay structurally does this sort of look interesting and have what i've got yes okay then then it goes in 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 the bin but it's um i kind of liken it to looking at a piece of art sometimes like I can look at a piece of art and I like it. I can't tell you why. Mm. I literally, I could walk around an art, art exhibition and there's certain pieces of art which will just jump out and I will instantly like them, but I have no idea why. Is that, does that come, I suppose it's different with music, particularly with you, because I know that you, when it, you, you know, you're sort of musically quite well ed- educated, but is it almost, does it almost sort of transcend reason in the first five seconds? It's just kind of like a feeling and an emotion and then you'd afterwards intellectualize. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that um, it, it, obviously it depends on what you put in your search for the track as well. So if it's if it's something I'm looking for for a specific scene, then I'll know the feeling I want, and I need to know that feeling is going to be there with the music first in the first few seconds. So it's like 
I want it to be obvious for the audience what this, or for the execs, whoever's going to be judging this track, what emotion we're trying to get across. Sometimes it plays against the scene on purpose, so you're just trying to create an atmosphere of awkwardness or tension or whatever. Um, and sometimes, and that's what Lucretia Dalt does, and in, in, she does things you wouldn't expect, which prick your ear and make you listen without imposing. And sometimes she does impose, and that's really good. You know, like, she has a real voice. Um, I think you'd hear it, and if you knew her stuff, you'd go, oh, that's her. You'd know straight away. She has a real individual style. But, yeah, I think it's a gut. I think it's a gut, and you're trying, you are trying to to convey something that's going to help our pictures if they're not quite working or one of the performances isn't quite landing or it's a bit quiet or um and so okay so you've mentioned lucretia Dalt a couple of times which is i'm actually not familiar with the work at all so i'm going to go and uh, have a listen but I'm, I'm going to link to all the music sort of mentioned in the in and like even the sort of like editors as well link to them in the show notes um but this is probably kind of good time to go getting a getting a taste getting a taste oh yummy you mentioned earlier, you know, kind of the idea that uh, we're kind of always drawing on our own influences and, and um, that goes some way to informing our own sort of creative style. Um, Lucretia Dalt was obviously someone whose work you think is great. Are there any other sort of composers around at the moment who are doing stuff which sort of really interests you? Um, the composers on Ghosts, obviously, they're fabulous. So, uh, uh, Are there multiple composers? There actually, uh, well, there's two. Hans Zimmer. Oh, Arthur Sharp did series one, who's brilliant. Uh, and um, Rawley Long did series two th- and three of Ghosts. They're all really fun, but I like working with them. Uh, and, I, and they're really good at taking notes. And they, they take a piece of guide, because often I put guide on Ghosts as its library, or a previous series piece of music, and they it always comes back as a massive step forward, which is really lovely. You know, that's the thing. It's like, so Ollie Julian is amazing. He just, he did this chase scene on Code 404. And I'm not joking, not, he took the te- turned this temp around. It's only, it's probably about a minute long. In about four hours, just to, just as a guard, just to see if it would work. Because it, it was the start of an episode. We wanted to have something for our cut that was going out that night. We sent him a rough cut. He hit all the story. I had some, got some, some guides that hit the story beats. You know, it rose and fall and where the intensity needed to be, where the joke was, where the, where the punchline was, whatever. And he, he just smashed it. It's just unbelievable. I, I constantly just look at that and go, that's such a skill. To be able to interpret all those things, those cues, and speak that language, but also then put it within the palette of the world, create new bits understand that a swell here would do this to the audience or a, a missing bit there would do that to the audience. It's just, it's amazing. But no, I, I try not to let, it's just a bit like the cut, I try not to listen to just the score. I think that's for the composers. Right. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because it's Code, for, Code 404 is a comedy, is it, predominantly? It's a comedy drama, but it's definitely very silly. I can't get my head around the idea of Stephen Graham playing comedy because he's such a scary he plays, this, he plays yeah he's scary he's such an amazing actor yeah he's he, um, so danny mays plays the main comedy character and steven's the straight man really i mean i think that's fair i think steven is funny at times but he's funny because he's so good it's funny seeing stephen graham playing this there's you know they're a they're a, a they're a double act for sure and he plays the straight reactions he's the sort of he's the voice of everyone watching and lots of fronts 
you know, like Danny Mays is clowning and being absolutely ridiculous, and Stephen's there just absolutely. I mean, he's just you watch him on a close up on, on the rushes, you're just like, Jesus, it just it looks like he's not doing anything. It's just all in there. It's all all up on his tight shot. It's really incredible. And they're both wonderful, actually. Danny's clowning is, uh, and he can turn on sixpence to to go from a, the, the dramatic lead to the clown, the buffoon in in, in, a, in a yeah tiny breath. It's a great cast. So that's Ollie Julian um, scoring Code Four Hundred Four. What about kind of like movies? Are there any you know film composers? I mean, there was at one point I was going through a period. I sort of watch a film and at the score, I'd be like, wow, I love this score. Who's done it? And it was either Hans, for a while it was Hans Zimmer seemed to do them all. And then after a while it was um, Johan Johansson. Yes, sorry, so Johan Johansson. Are there, is it, do you ever get that where you sort of, this, just to sort of like you're watching films um, and just you sort of think, wow, who's done that? And then when you look, it's always the same person. No, I, I um, no, actually, weirdly, I only spot score, and this is where it's good to be able to step back from it because I think that I definitely have a foot with an interest in score, but and in, uh, most of my interest is in story. So the places I notice score is when it goes wrong and it's really not working. There was a film I watched recently, and I won't, I won't say what it is, but there's a oh. final... There's a final... I don't think it's fair to... Because to, 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 there's lots of shit I've done that people will hate, so... Yeah. <laughs> you can tell me afterwards off so air. You'll pop it in the next one, yeah. And then I'll... Well, no, I'll just... Yeah, I'll pop it in the next one. I'll pop it in the show notes, so secretly. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, the stuff I like, I, I like the stuff that doesn't do what, it, what you expect it to do. So, uh, but I would say that... Um, there's a scene, there's an end scene in a really good movie where the score's great all the way through, and then the last scene it's just rubbish, and it's just rubbish, and it's it just stands all over everything that they've worked so hard to. I spoke to a composer friend. He goes, "Yeah, he knows that guy," oh, <laughs> and right, he says yeah. it, it sounds like he just you know was given a free reign to go mental, and it, and it meant it stood out. It just it just sat on the scene, and you, if your ears used to that throughout a movie, you can have a big piece of music, but if you're not used to it and everything's bedded in perfectly. And then one sits on top of it and goes, oh, I'm a piece of music. It's just like, please. Well, you see, I, I, my instinct in that is to, um, to sort of go easy on the composer just because I know there's been, there's a, I'm not going to say what it is either. There's a series on, a famous TV series, and the, the, the series one, the score was amazing. I absolutely loved it. But the second series, the music was terrible because it, to my opinion, I felt it just didn't work because it was it had gone from sort of being very sort of understated sort of um, grainy violins and sort of kind of really tense to all of a sudden been somewhere between like a Hans Zimmer score and 24 where you've got these big epic drums. And, and I was like, I sometimes in those situations wonder, okay, how much of that is the composer who sort of missed a trick or how much of it is execs saying, no, we need it more like yeah. this. Or was the temp? Or was the temp score wrong in the first place? Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, has um, the temp score been been? Has it been fluffed? Yeah. Um. So, so scores aside, um, what about kind of like, um, just music generally? As you've sort of grown up listening to music, what other kind of like specific seminal albums, or artists, or you know that you've listen to from you know a young age that you feel have sort of shaped how you listen to music and what you you do and don't yeah like absolutely i think it's always been about uh the same thing it's an, an immediate reaction to music so my favorite album 
well, my two favourite albums probably still are Rage Against the Machines' big album and then the Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic album. Now, the thing about those albums is they're, well, for starters, they're incredible bands, but they, they do conjure an emotional reaction immediately. They catch your ear, they make you sit up and go, oh my God, what the hell is this? Um, and they have that stru- they have structure to them, which is quite common of that period where your first track's a banger, you're going to get a couple of tracks, not filler, but you know, they're going to keep you interested. Then your track six is going to be about, you know, like killing, uh, sorry, um, know your enemy is track six on the rage album. That was my favorite track for such a long time. Um, and then the, the chili peppers album, I talk about this a lot with a friend of mine, this composer friend who, I don't know why I find myself talking about this album so much, but it's a proper journey. It's, it's a massive album. But it's it's structured and journeyed. It, every track flows into the next track. It's just a, it's just an amazing piece of work. And while you've got everyone at the top of their game, well, certainly in terms of writing and the production on it is remarkable. Yeah. You know, I've read book. I've read the the Anthony Kiedis um, was it Scar Tissue book, and he talks about the production on that album, and it's a really fascinating, really fascinating story. Rick Rubin. Um, That's right. And it's yeah, it's interesting because I think with both of those albums i mean you know the instrument the musicians are incredible the songs are incredible everything about it's incredible but as well a, a great producer will will capture that magic so it's it's guys in a studio and you, the, i think it's is it funky monks is the um the documentary about the making of blood sugar sex magic and i mean those guys were off their they were off their heads on god knows what for but they're just in the studio just going crazy having fun and Rick Rubin's just putting up microphones and, and and miking stuff and sort of capturing it all um and you've just got this sort of real and it goes what you're saying about uniform rhythm i always think that when you've got guys you know a band in a studio just playing together there are going to be imperfections in that rhythm because they're not playing to a click track but that's that's actually quite often where the, the magic and the energy is and and a great producer knows how to capture it oh my god it's light and shade. That al- yeah, that album it rises and falls. It has, you know, um, under the bridge on it. It's got suck my kiss, and these are completely different tracks written by the same genius genius minds, and they're they're remarkable al- remarkable albums. Those two, I, I th- they've stuck with me. I mean, I think my musical taste has been transitional. Uh, apart from that, before that was Guns and Roses, like, but I you know grew out of that if you like. It doesn't have the. It doesn't quite have the same complexity yeah. as those those other albums. And um, yeah, on through other areas like Metall- I loved Metallica for a long time. But then after that it was Jamiroquai and it was funk. Mm. Uh, Stevie Wonder is is the big one for me. That's that's my his earlier stuff, especially. I think Stevie Wonder's really. I heard that first when I was eighteen, and maybe a bit old, maybe nineteen. But I was like, what is this? This is just... It was Songs in the Key of Life and a friend was playing it to me in the car. You never heard this. It was when George Michael and Mary J. Blige brought out the cover of As. Okay. Do you remember that cover? Which I was like, this no. song's great. He went, have you heard the original? And <laughs> I put, he put the original on. I was like, oh... This is even better. Oh, there's a world of music I don't know about because I was brought up on just the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. I still have a love for the Beatles, but but it's not... Stevie, hearing Stevie Wonder and then hearing Superstition and then hearing, um, I mean, uh, Living for the City and all these songs, I was like, what 
the hell? This is, and it's also, it's storytelling. It's just such, so powerful to hear stories written like that within within this incredible, yeah. incredible music. And it's almost as well, it sounds like, you know, it's literally a case of press play and within seconds you're like, whoa, what is this? It's eliciting right. that immediate emotional response. Yeah, and I think that happens on screen, doesn't it? Like when you're trying to cut stuff, there'll be times when I'll watch assemblies and I'll go, we've done, I'll go, yeah, it's not quite bringing me in hard enough or what, why am I not intrigued? Why am I not feeling the intention of the story you know, of the writers and the performers and the director. So then you have to interrogate your own decisions to make sure you're, you're able to, to, to elicit these, these things, I suppose, if you bring back to cutting or help to anyway, because you're part of them. You're part of a big group of people, obviously as an editor, you're not, you're not the lead singer. You're not, you're the drummer. Yeah. Yeah. The guy that's in the background that gets no glory, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> which is fine. Absolutely fine by me. You know, it's like, I like that. I like that. I like the nerdery. I like understanding what my role is, and everyone everyone who needs to know what I do knows what I. They know what I do. They they they're very happy with what I do, and that's great. Yeah. But no one else, and that's fine. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I totally subscribe to that as well. My dalliances as an acoustic singer songwriter is like I much prefer to be locked in a soundproof room where no one can see or hear me, <laughs> rather than on stage where everyone can see and hear me, not necessarily wanting to see or hear me. So. Um, what about more? Is there any sort of music kind of more recent which has kind of captured your imagination? Let's have a look. I can't. I can't off the top of my head think of anything that new that I've that I've been listening to. In fact, to the point where you might want to cut that question out. <laughs> okay. Well, I can do. <laughs> so on my little one of my running playlists, there's a track called "Loving Is Easy" by Rex Orange County, right? Oh yeah. Don't know when that. Do you know that That's, song? I don't, but I know Rex Orange County. That he's that's fairly fairly recent, I think, in the last sort of five right. Years. Okay. I feel like an old man. Um, Let's have a look down here. There's, I don't, uh, rock, rock and Roll is Cold by Matthew E. White. Love that track, right? Don't know when it was written. Mistakes by Lake Street Dive. Love that track. What's that? The New Basement Tapes, which is a load of um, covers by an amazing sort of super group. It gets suggested. I listen to it. I like it. I put it in a playlist. And that's it. You don't sort of explore. But yeah, so yeah, I'm afraid it's a bit like... Um, who, who are your favourite directors? It's like, I don't... I, I couldn't tell you any modern ones. There's so many people working now and so many good voices, but do any of them have a style of voice or a, you know, a theme like they used to? Are there any that sort of stick out as in sort of like just off the top of your head, so like somebody who's done something recently that you really liked, director-wise? We've just, we're watching Succession, okay? Love Succession. But I would say that the direct and directing doesn't stand out. Because I think the cast is so strong and they shoot it in such a way that you couldn't tell one director from another, I would say, on that show. Um, because you're, but because they're all doing good work. So they're all working hard and it works for all of them. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's the case with these sort of shows that are on now, is that you, you know, the same the one I'm working on, like there are four directors on the show I'm working on. I'm working with three of them. And they all have their own voice and their own style, and, and they've each got a different DOP. So you're trying to tether them together to yeah, feel like sure. one universal piece of work. So as the person, I'm the one who's across all blocks, or more across all blocks, there are bits where I'm like, I think we've used this shot like this in this episode, so maybe we should try and marry that up here. Um, 
So yeah, it's hard to say. With like with musically, there were clearly you know there was clearly bands and or albums that you can identify as sort of having a profound effect on you. Does does the same work with sort of like do you sort of look back at kind of TV series or movies that you saw when you were younger or when you were starting out editing where you think that you sort of saw it and went wow that's a really interesting and that had a sort of yeah, inspirational effect. I on definitely you? Th- yeah I think so. I think that I, and, and this comes back to the idea of what do you do want to do when you started and. Uh, sort of realising I didn't know and now I sort of understand more about what I want and what I liked but the films I'm a a big fan of David Fincher um, and I think you can see themes in his choices of 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 movies I was a big fan of Terry Gilliam Uh, he he, and he's obviously a big fan of the absurd Uh, and there are things I don't like in some of his films but overall I think his level of um questioning reality and unreality you know works with my other things I loved which was like Stanley Kubrick Stanley Kubrick could create atmosphere in a way that made you question the whole genre like you would question filmmaking to the point where you're like what am I watching you know they were playful in a horrific way you know like Eyes Wide Shut which while it's not the best film ever made it had atmosphere coming out of his ears you know, it made you feel anxious and tense and all those things. And that's all from the editing. Mm. Oh, no, sorry. Sorry, that's not fair. <laughs> it's a lot of it comes from the editing and the way that they, they put those pieces together. And it, um, there was a film called Angel Heart, which I thought was one of the first films I saw that used the editing in a visceral, horrific way that we now see in everyday telly. I can't remember who cut that now. Um, but yeah, it's like you say with the albums, the earlier films, the films that really hit you, they hit you in that in that 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 period of your time when you're a period of your life where you're more impressionable. Probably, it's harder to to walk away from a film now and not have taken so much to it. You know, you take so much to the movies that it's very easy to be unimpressed if it didn't do doesn't do the thing. I mean, you could talk to a young audience and they'll absolutely lap it up, but it really. Well, that's, yeah, and it's interesting as well, isn't it? I think the older you get or the, the sort of wiser you get or even the more exposed to art you are you it's it's harder to be impressed by something that you've seen a hundred times before uh, whereas when you're younger you're sort of it's very much a journey of exploration so you sort of see something and go, oh i really like that which you know actually 30 years later you know somebody you see the same thing and it's kind of like well yeah I've, I've, it's like like with music like there's a lot of times I sort of go well yeah this is good but it's like not something original not something I've seen before not something I haven't heard before but actually in my more formative years although I suppose maybe maybe stuff if it's if it's good enough it actually transcends that sort of age and that experience thing I don't know it is fascinating I, Edgar my son plays the guitar and he loves playing Rage Against the Machine and Metallica wow. <laughs> Um, they're the they're the things he likes playing the most because they give him the loudest voice okay. as a guitarist. Yeah, yeah. Those pieces of music that I've described, I mean, I know I've ex- I've probably played them to him, but they have had the same they have had the same uh, sort of impact on him when he's heard them. Sure. Mm. So I don't know. I'm not going to show him seven yet or twelve monkeys, <laughs> but maybe, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe I will. Well, yeah. I mean, seven. 
yeah, both of those films are going to be sort of impactful, certainly Seven. Um, but yeah, <laughs> wait until he's, uh, he's yeah. old enough. Um, a little bit older. Mike, I'm conscious of time, so we'll um, we'll wrap up. That's, it's great. It's been great chatting to you. There's so much really interesting stuff. And there's a, what's really interesting, there's a lot of, pa- I think it's within the creative field, but there's a lot of parallels within the world of editing and that sort of creative expression as there is with music. Um, but if we may, I'd just like to finish up with a couple of quick fire questions. The first one oh, being, God. what's your favourite biscuit? Oh, or cook, oh, shit, cookie man. for the Americans. It's probably a, a cookie. You've got a big American audience. It hasn't got out yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it's a. Oh no! I had a white chocolate Oreo the other day over the top of it. That was pretty hardcore. If you're not going to be a biscuit person, then go deep. And I went deep with that. I had two of them, and it was pretty banging. Yeah, that's going to give you a sh- yeah. sugar rush for days to come. Nice. Um, what scares Mike Holiday? Honestly, uh, this is quite boring, but the children getting hurt, sorry. <laughs> it's so boring. <laughs> and that actually genuinely scares me. If you wanted a funny answer, I haven't... I, I, falling and dying. <laughs> is that funny? It's, That's not funny. It's not funny. Well, you falling and dying. If you do a funny, if you do a funny scream on the way down, that'd be that funny. That would be hilarious. Or if the music stopped just as you fell, you know, you sort of built, right, pull or it out it, from under them. Or it's like... Yeah, it's like at the end of the game where it's actually he lands on a inflatable. Yep. Do you remember that? I do, yeah. That's a David Fincher reference. Sorry if anyone hasn't seen that. Uh, spoiler alert. I think, yeah, basically health of loved ones um, is, is a source of fear. Um, and finally, if you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Oof. Don't worry about it, man. <laughs> chill out. Ch- chill out, mate. Try not to be so obsessed with time. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I'm obsessed with time. I'm really good with t- deadlines, but it makes me quite hard to live with. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> I feel like I have a very dysfunctional, or have had, and still do to a certain extent, dysfunctional relationship with time. It's wrestling with that, just trying to be present in the moment, which I think when I'm working is fine. Oh, yeah. But outside of, yeah, outside yeah. of my work, being present in the moment without sort of constantly thinking of this stuff that's coming up which then sort of stresses me out and makes me sort of anxious is um yeah something um yeah it's interesting it's interesting as well like um yeah time i think like you say there's a time frame when you're working you're it's like meditation right editing and music are the same in some ways you're sitting and you're deep in a job and that gives your brain a and it gives your brain a massive buzz they've they've studied this sort of thing you get Dopamine release, uh, dopamine releases in your brain when you're focused on a task and being, you know, you're being um, productive and it makes you happy to to be in, creatively in control. All those things are really good for you. And when you finish a deadline and it's gone, it leaves you with a strange void of a transition window where you've got to then reintegrate with your family. If you're working on a job for 15 hours and then you have to travel home, it's a short like decompression to get home you can be unbearable at home because you're bringing all the angst you've been dealing with with a client is now coming out and on a holiday it takes me two days to get into relaxing really so yeah anything you can do to be more present is good but um it gets harder as you get older uh and uh, and uh, but you're more aware of it which is good yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting as well because I think we composers have that as well. If you spent, I, I quite often call it studio glaze. I'll sort of step out of the studio after, 
you know, an intense session and I feel like I've lost the ability to interact with other human beings mm. entirely. And you can see it in people's 100%. eyes as well. When they walk out of the studio, you go, you can see instantly with the, some of the guys that work in the studios near me is like, I can see instantly whether or not they've just sort of been so immersed in something they don't know what yeah. day of the week it is. Um, yeah, you need to basically take more breaks and talk to more people. Yes. If you're working alone, you need to take a lot of breaks. Yeah. Make sure you're, make sure you're actually there. Yeah because <laughs> yeah. it's addictive it's an addictive process and that's what makes it so hard to take criticism uh because you've spent so much time investing uh oh that's the other thing i'd say uh nothing is criticism no everything is just ideas and that's okay oh that i, I like that everything is just ideas that's really nice um i think that's a way to think about it because otherwise it can tear you apart well that it, that is a beautiful succinct and uh sort of philosophical note Boom. to end on um other than giving away your home address, where can people find you? <laughs> Editwithmike.com. Editwithmike.com. And obviously they can get an HBO subscription and a Sky Scub subscription and watch... Uh, Sky subscription, BBC, BBC yeah. yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, my next show, The Baby Goes Out in April. If 2022. It'll be out before. Yeah, definitely. man. Um, awesome <laughs> alright Mike well thank you so much for taking the time to talk it's been f- fascinating and um, yeah good luck with uh, with all your endeavours this year thank you very much for listening if you've enjoyed this episode and given that you've listened this far I feel you might have then I would be honoured and incredibly grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe rate and review on your podcast platform of choice By subscribing, you'll automatically be notified each time a new episode drops. And by rating the show, you tell the artificial intelligence that will soon be running the world that this podcast is worth listening to. I certainly get a lot of insights and value from these conversations, and I genuinely hope you do too. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email me, podcast at larkmusic.com. Larkmusic.com is my digital abode, and the home of the podcast is larkmusic.com forward slash sync music matters podcast. And sync music matters podcast is hyphenated. Thanks again for listening, and until next time. <laughs>